This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I want to talk about civility and I want to talk about rational disagreement, both of which I think are very important, but they're not exactly the same thing. And there are ways in which they can part ways. Uh, hopefully they overlap, but let me begin just by making a couple of observations that I think will probably ring true to all of you about our current cultural and political situation. We're, we're not really good at civility or rational disagreement. There may be some connection between those two deficiencies in our public discourse. Um, civic animosity, I was talking about this today a little bit at the lunch conversation where we are talking about friendship, and we've witnessed over the last 30 to 40 years a decline in the number of deep personal friendships that most Americans say that they have. We've also witnessed a decline in civic friendship, or to put it more precisely, a significant rise in civic hatred. So a few years back during the Kavanaugh Supreme Court hearings, which now almost seem mild by comparison to what's happened in our culture since then, and also seem like they happened 10 or 20 years ago now. Uh, John Haidt from NYU, who's a social psychologist, tweeted, if you want to know why we're, uh, uh, if you want to see how we got to being at one another's throats constantly, he put up uh, details of a survey. Uh, the question of, for the survey was, do you hate members of the opposite political party? And in the eight, 1980s, 1990s, and into the early part of this century, the average percentage of Americans who said yes to that question was around 15. In about eight to 10 years ago, it starts to rise to the point where it's typically in 45 to 48% range of Americans who respond to that question, yes, I hate members of the other political party. So civic friendship is on the decline. Civic friendship understood as uh, a kind of friendship that's not nearly as deep as personal friendships that we have, but which reaches across to a broad range of our fellow citizens, no matter what they may happen to think. On social media, if any of you pulled up Twitter right now and opened uh, virtually any Twitter post, about five subtweets, subtweets down, you're gonna find people very angry at one another. And their operating default assumption seems to be that anyone who disagrees with me or my side is both stupid and evil. It may be the case that there are, and there certainly probably are people in the world who aren't well-educated on topics that they're talking about, and there certainly are malicious people in the world. Maybe we're both at times ourselves. But to have as a default assumption that anyone who disagrees with me or my side is both stupid and evil seems a bit presumptuous. It generates a kind of deep in civility and hostility. It's also striking that as our culture has become more secular over the past 20 or 30 years, our politics has become more zealous. It's become less civil. The cause and effect there, I leave to you to think about, but it's certainly clear as well. And we're facing, in a way, a problem in the culture, in our politics, that the founders knew well. Right? The founders thought that one of the great enemies of Demo democratic republics was faction. And they're one of their, this is their sort of negative um, uh, way of dealing with faction, was to hope to multiply them. Right? Because if you multiply factions, no one faction has an easy opportunity to take over. We seem to be moving in to two extreme factions in the culture, which even if they may not represent a majority of either side politically, are taking up all the airtime and all of our attention. And because of that, I'll get to this later, I think, with, one, with Aquinas on envy. Because of that, we sort of fulfill in each side the worst apprehension. So you remember Newton's law, 
that each act calls forth an equal and opposite reaction. I would say in our contemporary culture, each statement or charge by one side calls forth an opposite but exponentially higher response from the other side. So that we actually fulfill the worst expectations that we have, that the other side has of us and that we have of them. Because of that, our fears are pretty well grounded. That's one of the problems, is that our fears are not irrational in this situation, because our fear is if any one side really gets the upper hand, our side is going to be obliterated. And as we escalate, that becomes increasingly likely that that would happen. How does civility help? I don't think civility is going to cure that. Simply being civil is not going to cure that. Civility is useful because civility allows us to disagree without making it personal. Right? Civility allows us to disagree with one another in a way where we're still treating one another with some degree of respect. It also allows for us not to exponentially ratchet things up. Right? What incivility does very quickly is it pushes your opponent, not your interlocutor or your fellow citizen, but your opponent into a corner. And if someone acts incivilly toward you, it pushes you into a corner where you have to fight even harder and in a more angry, less civil way. Incivility also closes off, at least for that time period, the possibility of any type of civic friendship that might bridge divides. I want to make two observations about what civility isn't, Civil or doesn't mean. Civility does not mean, at least I would not advocate civility that meant, that each of us should have just pleasant conversations with anyone about anything, anywhere. One of the problems with the way ideology is operating in our current culture and politics is that people are placing the advancement of ideology above people. And they do this not only if they're on the side opposed to you, so you might say something in uh, thinking that you can trust a person who's on an opposite ideological side, and they'll immediately use that to advance their own ideological position, not caring about the impact upon you. This is happening a lot with people on the same side of ideological battles. I know a number of people who have gotten into bad situations because they've said things which while they didn't ask for confidentiality, they figured that what they were saying was gonna be trusted by people who were in their same camp, and then a day later that person found that ideologically useful to put that information out there, thereby jeopardizing this other person who didn't want it made public in the way it was made public. Ideology is trumping an awful lot, and it's certainly trumping civility. But civility does not mean that you ought simply to nonchalantly and naively enter into any conversation with anyone. I think it is reasonable for us to be careful about the kinds of conversations we have across and within ideological cul-de-sacs. The other thing that I want to say about civility, and there, there, are, um, there are some very good books on this. Ben Sass, Arthur Brooks, both have really good books, Them and Love Your Enemies, that are about the need to bring back civility and to diminish the role of contempt in our public life. I think both of those books, and these are people whose thought and lives I respect, uh, both of those books have a weakness to them, which will allow us to pivot to the question of rational disagreement, which is that they let the topic of truth drop out. I don't mean that they're suggesting that we shouldn't be concerned about truth, but they don't connect a concern with truth to a concern with civil discourse. One of the reasons that I need civil discourse, not with everybody, but sometimes with people who, especially who disagree with me, is that I don't know everything. And there are lots of things that I think I know that I know only 
partial. And if I dismiss, repudiate, cancel people who disagree with me without wanting to focus less on the fact that they disagree and more on their arguments, then I miss out on what could be an important opportunity to learn something. Notice, learning something doesn't mean that I'm going to give up my entire position because I've learned something from someone who has raised objections to me or defended in a somewhat persuasive way a different position. That's part of the problem of our incivility is that everything seems all or nothing and everything's a battle. Well, if I'm concerned as a citizen and as a Christian about growing in wisdom and knowledge, then I'd better be careful not immediately to dismiss everyone who disagrees with me simply because they disagree with me. Because that person might have an argument that I need to hear, even if two weeks down the road, I think that position is less rational than I thought it was two weeks ago, right? I can think it's less rational, but I will have better grounds for thinking that. What is rational disagreement? What is rational argument? Civility, this is one of the ways in which civility may or may not serve rational disagreement. Civility can be a way of avoiding argument. I grew up uh, on the other side of D.C. I was born in D.C. and grew up in the Maryland suburbs. I'm I'm a Yankee Catholic, and I've spent most of my professional career with my good Baptist friends in the South. And I came there as an administrator, and I would go into meetings, and we'd be 20 minutes in, and I'm like, what are we doing? We're talking about relatives, we're talking about all, and we got stuff to get done, and I'm looking at my watch, and I'm thinking, I got things to do. And this was all part of the culture of civility of Southern Baptists. And it took me a while not to be extremely frustrated with this. It also took me a while not to get really frustrated when I thought we were getting to the point where we were actually going to take up a really important issue, and suddenly the talk about family and other stuff would take over, and we would just avoid the topic. I'm like, what is what is going on? I'm used to East Coast, sort of, you hash out the issue and you come at it very directly. Well, that civility is a wonderful thing for building up a sense of welcoming and belonging in a community. But civility can get in the way of rational disagreement. It can get in the way of argument. So civility is not always a virtue. I want to talk briefly, and I'm trying not to make this too abstract or technical. I want to talk briefly about what I take from Aristotle and Aquinas about rational argument and rational disagreement. The first thing you need to do is make an argument and make a good one, right? If you're going to make an argument, make it clear, make it lucid, back up your premises if you've got them. That's the lowest level of rational engagement for Aquinas. Make an argument. And now, I'm not so much thinking about how we would operate in a generically public sphere as I would when we're thinking about how we pursue the truth with friends. And maybe with some friends that we don't fully agree with about everything. The next step, and this is a really important one for Aquinas, you have to consider objections to your position. I always tell my students when they're writing papers in my philosophy class, we all think that when we've written something, even if we've finished it 20 minutes before class starts, right, that it's brilliant and we hand it in and then we get it back and we're like, ooh, not so brilliant. And maybe if we had written it 48 hours earlier and given ourselves a little bit of time to read it over again, we might have seen that it wasn't as brilliant as we initially thought. One of the ways to test your own argument and to make your argument persuasive is to take up an objection. What would someone, whatever you write, you ought to be asking yourself, what would someone who disagreed with me about this particular text, this particular issue, what might they object to? What might they object to that seems to be a contradiction of my argument? 
What might they give from some other perspective? Aquinas, if you ever read him, seems to have a voracious, endless appetite for objections. He never gets enough of them, especially in, if you read the, the last Summa Theologiae, he's artfully picking a few objections usually per article. Summa Contra Gentile is his work that he wrote not many years earlier, which I've spent a lot of time working on. It's endless objections, just endless objections. And Norris Clark, the great Jesuit at Fordham, once asked me, he said, Tom, why, why does he make so many objections? Why does he make so many arguments? And why in that book are, are so many of them so bad? I said, well, that's a good question. A, a, a part of what Aquinas is doing there is attempting to consider every possible objection to make his answer stronger. Aquinas had almost a career-long fight with an Islamic philosopher of Arabs. He never met him, but he had a, a he had a a career-long fight over Averroes' view of the soul. And again, I'm not going to get too technical here, but Averroes had this view that at death, all of our souls merge into one universal soul. The unity, the famous teaching on the unity of the intellect. This is rooted in debates over how to interpret Aristotle. But Aquinas obviously thought, both from philosophy and from theology, this has got to be false. right? From the perspective of Revelation, there is no personal judgment or personal redemption if this is true. Aquinas is ex more exasperated. He doesn't get exasperated much. But he gets exasperated with Averroes, and especially Averroes' followers in the universities in Europe, the new universities at the time. And one of the things that Aquinas does, he wrote a whole book called On the Unity of the Intellect Against the Averroes. One of the things that Aquinas does is repeatedly try to reconstruct Averroes' argument even after he thinks he's refuted it. So he'll say, okay, I've given a refutation of those five arguments, but what if someone, a follower of Averroes, said, you haven't got this right, here's what we actually mean. Aquinas does this endlessly. Now, he wants to undermine the argument, but he also wants to make his own position persuasive by making the objections even stronger than the ones Averroes has given or of arrows as followers. Very few of us do that ever when we're thinking about arguments. Very few of us spend a lot of time thinking, okay, what's an even better objection to my position? Uh, one of my, um, a student I worked with at Baylor who went on, he's now a practicing attorney in Dallas, went on to clerk uh, at the Supreme Court. And when we brought him back, I know we have a lot of honors students here. I ran the honors college at Baylor for a number of years. When we brought him back to speak at recruitment events, he would talk about the most important moment in his undergraduate education at Baylor. He was in an honors constitutional law class, and he read a certain case, fired up to come in and give a barrage of arguments against this particular case that the Supreme Court had decided wrongly, he thought. Well, much to his dismay, he walked into class, and he's sitting over here, and there's another group sitting over there, and the teacher says, okay, we're going to divide up, and this side of the class is going to defend the case. <laughs> and this side of the class is going to argue against it. After he overcame his frustration, he realized later that was the best experience he had. It was a great preparation for law school, but it was a great preparation for getting a real education because he learned to see the opposing side from the inside, and he learned to come up with the best arguments that that point of view could have. As I say, it may or may not be the case that seriously entertaining objections from the other side and taking the time, even after you think you've refuted that person on the other side, to wonder and say, huh, is there a better argument from that side that I might put to myself, right? It may or may not be the case that you end up altering your view. Many times if you're writing a paper and you bring up an objection, the best thing to do is to concede that there's some truth in that objection, and then to go on and say, but nonetheless, my fundamental thesis is still sound. Another thing that Aquinas does, and it's akin to what I just said, in the, in the first book of the physics, not going to go through all of the first book of Aristotle's physics, Aristotle takes up views about change. 
He's especially concerned with two really extreme views. This view of Parmenides, pre-Socratic philosopher, that there is no change. Change is an illusion because being can only generate being and you need non-being in there somewhere to have change. Then on the opposite side is this philosopher Heraclitus who was famous for saying in Greek, Pantare, all things are in flux, all things flow. Said you can't even step into the same river, not just twice, but even once, because everything's changing. Aristotle goes and gives his argument for how we understand change in nature so that it's intelligible. Then he goes back to Parmenides and Heraclitus' view and wants to show what was right in their view and where they went wrong and why. This is a different level. It's not just taking up an objection. It's trying to show what in the objection is actually valid and true and how that's incorporated in my view and then to show where the view goes wrong and why. Right? Because typically if we if great minds make intellectual errors, we're going to be tempted by those errors and those wrong paths at some point in our own thinking if we can know where it goes wrong and why. So make an argument, consider objections, integrate opposed views to the extent that you can into your own view and show where and why those go wrong. The big thing for Aquinas though, what provides the most persuasion for him and why he wrote these great summas is that the mind wants not just the truth about this or that. The mind wants the truth about how all of these things are integrated and the Christian mind wants the truth about how all the truths that we know can be integrated with God's truth. And so these, these grand works that Aquinas writes are about showing that all of the learning, this is almost impossible in our day because the disciplines are so split, but if we could have it, this is what Aquinas thinks is the most compelling presentation. It's a presentation that integrates all that we know and then shows how that fits with God's truth. Notice that when we shift over to rational disagreement for the sake of knowledge and wisdom, rather than for the sake of winning over an opponent, there's a different focus. And we want to not avoid the objection that we're thinking, oh, I hope nobody brings up that objection today, because that'll make our position look bad. In a public setting of a debate, maybe that's appropriate, maybe. But if we're actually in a shared inquiry after the truth, that's the last thing you want to want, is for a really good objection to be hidden or suppressed. You want the strongest objections on the table. And as a professor, it's, the way we teach as professors is, can be as important as what we teach. And if we're willing to step back and say, you know, this is what I think about this. And by the way, you're not going to get an A in this class simply by repeating my conclusion. And if you give bad arguments for my conclusion, I'm going to be more offended than if you had strongly defended a view that I oppose. Right? We need to let our students know that we're not about checklisting truths in inquiry. And we need to be willing to say, you know, there's this really good objection that I'm still struggling with. What do you think? This is an invitation to all of us to engage in inquiry where we all make progress in learning. It's also about wisdom rather than ammunition. We might need ammunition to argue against people in certain contexts, but our fundamental impulse ought to be toward wisdom. That's what Aquinas thought the human soul was about. That's why he thought we needed an education. That's why, in part, beyond our the key, which is our redemption through Christ. That's why we also need deep reflection on the scriptures and on the writings of those who have thought most carefully and deeply about the scriptures and who have lived lives that most accord with the scriptures. Because it's about wisdom. One of the great dangers for us in the social consideration of what we believe and what we defend is what C.S. Lewis famously called the inner way. Many of you may have read this address by C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis is thinking about boarding schools and the kind of cliques that develop there. Right? You, can, you can think about cliques in high schools, you can think about fraternities and sororities, but 
You can also think about inner rings in businesses, in government, even in churches. Right? And Lewis says about the inner ring that, speaking to young people, it's something you're going to have to face soon if you haven't already. And it's the thing that allows or encourages not-so-bad people to do really bad things. And the inner ring for him is the desire to be inside the group. That's the in-group. And in businesses and government and churches, it's the group that sets the standards for everybody else in the wider group. Lewis says if you find yourself subtly, but eventually quite notably, altering what you think because you don't want to be criticized. And often, if you've gotten close to the inner group, you've gotten close enough there so that explicit criticism is not needed. It's a glance, it's a roll of the eyes, it's a shrug where people say, well, why would you bring that up? If you find yourself bending your thinking and what you say against what you know in your heart in order to continue to feel like you're a part of the inner ring, then you could be in real trouble because you've lost the ability to speak truth as you see it. The inner ring is what leads us to want to defend at all costs what's mine or what's ours. We do have responsibilities to what's mine or what's ours. But if you read Plato in The Republic, one of the real problem of getting at the truth is that we prefer what's mine or what's ours, our group, our tribe, to what's actually true. And we need to have a fundamental commitment to finding out the truth. And this takes courage. Takes There's a great line from Pascal. It also takes love of the truth. Pascal said at one point, truth is, now, is so obscured nowadays that only those who love it have a chance of finding it. That's probably true in every age. Given the social media pressures, which are inner ring-like, it's even greater in our own time. Lewis talks in related essays about being an isolated individual or being part of a collective. And the inner ring is a kind of collective, right? Lewis also talks about another type of community, which is a community of friends, right? This is the alternative, a community of friends. A community of friends is not a place where you're constantly going through a checklist in your head about what you say. It may be a place where you hold one another accountable, right? But it's not a place where you're constantly afraid of saying what you think. On the contrary, in a context of friendship, is where you can allow yourself to be most vulnerable about what's true about yourself and what you understand to be the truth and not to be the truth. And we all need friends and family members at times to let us know that we're telling ourselves lies. Right? And one of the problems with an inner ring is it cultivates a community where deception gets built in to the very foundations of the community and where belonging is more important than the truth. We need communities where we can say what we think and grow in knowledge, which means we usually need enough shared agreement about certain things. You're not gonna make a lot of progress by having all your friendships be with people you diametrically disagree with about all sorts of things. But it also means that you, or at least I would urge you, not primarily to have a checklist for who's in your friend group and who isn't. And I would urge you that if you have friends, there can be fundamental issues where friendships break, but if you have friends who disagree with you about certain things, I've got a number of friends like this whose friendship I really treasure and from whom I learn a lot. And when I run things administratively at various places, I've always wanted some of those people in the room because my worry as an administrator is always if we've got something close to an inner ring in here, 
we're going to miss something when we're making an important decision. Because there's lots of things we're habituated as a group to avoiding talking about. The proper kind of friendship, and conversely, Aristotle thinks these are among our greatest friendships. Right? He says at one point, friendships enables us better both to think and to act. And friendship, as C.S. Lewis says at one point, Lewis says two diametrically opposed things at one point in the essay on friendship and the four loves, which I taught at Taylor for a number of years, where he says friendship is not something that you value for the sake of anything else that comes from it. It, it gives value to life, intrinsic value. But then he also says, of course, we need friends for lots of reasons, for our physical and mental health, even to know ourselves, Lewis says, we need friends. So in this pursuit of knowledge, partly what we're trying to do and why Socrates says we've got to begin by admitting what we don't know, is that we need to be clearer about where each of us stands in relation to the truth. And we don't have that unless we have friends who, are, who can help us to see where we stand in relation to the truth. A last couple of comments, and then I'm happy to take questions. Vices can enter deeply into our engagement with others. Aquinas mentions envy as one of those, and what he calls suspicion. Which, and I think something like suspicion is what's going on on Twitter. Because Aquinas says that suspicion is a perversity of our affections or passions, which leads us to judge ill of someone on scanty evidence. He says sometimes we do this because we're evil ourselves and we expect that other people are going to be evil. Other times we do it because we're angry or envious of other people. The lowest level is doubting someone because of scanty evidence. The next level for Aquinas is being certain that they're evil without having good evidence. The highest level, the worst for him, is when a judge condemns someone on the basis of scanty or wrong evidence. Suspicion is connected to envy. It's a really interesting thing about envy for Aquinas. It's sort of the flip side of mercy. Both envy and mercy are rooted in sorrow for Aquinas, which you might think is a little odd. Envy is sorrow over another's good fortune, especially as that good fortune bears upon our own dishonor or looking worse than we otherwise would. Mercy is sorrow over another's misfortune or affliction. interesting to think about whether for Aquinas envy unchecked the sorrow gets channeled into pride and anger and a desire to harm the other person. I sometimes wonder if beneath all of our anger and hostility in our culture there are not pools of sadness and disappointment and despair that lead us to envy other people in all sorts of ways and lead us, because we're not tending to the sorrow, to lash out in anger and in wrath at others. These are vices that we have to be aware of that harm, lead us to harm not just others, but that block our ability to come to the good and the true. I want to end with a comment from, two comments from John Henry Newman great 19th century convert to the Catholic Church. Newman said of this process of trying to come to wisdom, one of the reasons we don't take this up, I think, is that we don't think widely in our culture. We're kind of hopeless, and many students are hopeless, about whether they can actually make progress in discovering the truth, especially if they're not in the ambit of faith which should inspire us all with the sense that a kind of confidence 
All the truths are eventually going to fit together, right? We're going to see that they fit together and that the universe has been created in such a way that it's intelligible to the minds that God has created. If you don't have that, it's easy to despair. But even if you have that, it can be difficult, especially as a believer, because you come upon regularly objections, if you're a thoughtful person, that you haven't fully thought out. Newman says three things about this. Truth cannot contradict truth. That's the good part. The bad part is truth often seems to contradict truth. Newman says be at peace between these two poles. Realize that over time, the contradiction you think you see will eventually be taken care of. And the truths that you hold that seem disconnected will over time become more integrated and connected. That's in a way the promise that God makes to us about the universe that he's created. Right? That it's made as a place for us to live in and to understand and to love as a reflection of him. The other thing that Newman says, he wrote this, gave this sermon on personal influence. And he said at one point, truth is not primarily upheld as a system, a book, an argument, or by temporal power. Truth is upheld and spread abroad persuasively by personal influence by the virtue and holiness of those who are both teachers and exemplars of that teaching and that holiness. One of the reasons to, at least in lots of cases, to resist the culture of hostility and contempt that we find ourselves in is that we lose the opportunity to be that personal influence toward people that we encounter online, on Zoom, across the table, at stadiums when we go to games or wherever it might be, that we encounter people who, with whom we might not agree fully. The virtues that are obstacles to our discovering the truth are often, excuse me, the vices that are obstacles to our discovering the truth are also often vices that undermine our ability to share that truth with others. And thus they undermine both civility and rational disagreement. Thank you. <laughs> Questions, please. So St. Thomas occasionally uses character attacks in his argument. For yeah. Our purposes, when would you say they, maybe they have a place or they not? Yeah, they're they're pretty rare, right? They are they are pretty rare. Um, he does occasionally with Averroes, uh, and there's this other uh, otherwise uh, relatively unknown medieval figure called David of Dinant, who equated God with prime matter. And Aquinas calls him stultissimus, most foolish. But Aquinas rarely gets beyond that. With, with Averroes, and especially some of Averroes' followers, he can use ad hominem, right? Um, so, yeah, I don't think that civility means, and this is, what, this is what I said at one point, right, that civility can block rational disagreement. And the thing about rational disagreement is that if it's about matters we care about, it can get heated. And it's personal. We have to have enough self-control so that the heat doesn't overtake the clarity and rigor of the argument or how we treat those with whom we're engaging. But it is the case, right? I mean, I think we're way over on this, right? It seems like even amongst... Christians and Catholics on Twitter, it's really cool now to use all sorts of foul language when you're criticizing other people. It's like, 
It's, I, I sometimes think of it as Christian or Catholic mean girls on Twitter. Uh, where, and, and it's a kind of inner ring thing on Twitter. I, I think that, that that's not, I mean, maybe, maybe that kind of language can be useful. But, you know, the kinds of things we're disagreeing with on, on disagreeing about on Twitter, everything could call for that, right? So it's one of the reasons I'll never be on Twitter. Um, but, so I think we're way over, but I think that's going to happen, right? And one of the things you're trying to do with language that gets a little salty or it's a little bit ad hominem is if you think people aren't taking the issue seriously enough or you think people are being deceived by bad arguments, the problem in our culture is we think that every 10 minutes about all sorts of things. So how do we, Aquinas is, is pretty selective. And we know also that Aquinas spent an awful lot of time every day in prayer, in silent prayer. Right? And then in communal prayer, are we balancing our more argumentative, vindictive moments with moments of silence with, that lead to or come out of deep prayer? Right? So I, I don't think that I would worry about just an occasional use of an ad hominem. Right? If you're the kind of person who finds yourself because you're clever and you can think up good ad hominems, Right? And cleverness is a trap for us. If you're that kind of person, you need to be really careful about how often you do that. Because you can win over an audience just by doing that if you're good at it. Right? Uh, and uh, so that's a, those are the sorts of things that we need, we're going to have to engage individually. When is this a vice and when is it not? Uh, I think we're way over on the vice side in our, in our public culture on this. And, um, you know, I think that, that Newman's right in the end, right? That he talks at the end of the idea of a university after he's made this really long argument that the goal of a university is the pursuit of truth. It's the one thing the university can do. We all have schools where we have athletics. We have lots of other things, right? The one thing the university can do is to pursue truth in its complexity and its unity. Newman's made this argument for the whole thing against all sorts of both religious and secular university utilitarians who only see it as useful for something that comes out of it. But then at the very end, he goes to Philip Neary, the oratorium which Neary had founded, and he talks about Neary setting what he said was a school of hospitality, a Christian mirth before anyone who came into his presence. Newman says, you know, he persuaded more people than any of the rest of us. And by the way, a university education is not primarily about persuading people who don't agree with us, right? It's about coming more deeply to know what we need to know about the disciplines and then seeing how they fit together and pursuing wisdom. As an offshoot, that can help us if we do have disagreements. But Newman, after all that lengthy argument about it's all about the pursuit of truth, the academic pursuit of truth. Then says Neary, in our midst, in the midst of a community, Neary is the one who persuaded more people because he set up a community of hospitality. And I think this is a standard, particularly for those of us who run Christian universities, right? It's, it's partly about maintaining, being true to our founding, being true to the Christian vision of things. It's also about hospitality. How do we treat staff? How do we treat visitors? Right? Is this a community where people, when they leave, say, man, that was a wonderful environment to be in. And that's, that's deeper than civility and deeper than niceness. Doing that habitually throughout the community takes Christian charity and hospitality. Other questions? Earlier you mentioned the... Um importance of having people with different opinions give feedback on arguments when they generate from like a biased inner ring. Yeah. Would you say that an inner ring only consists of people from the same views or would you say that it could also consist of people from different because I could see like having a friend group of people that are from a lot of different backgrounds they could give feedback but would you like reach out of that? Well no that, that second group not an inner ring necessarily right? And, and an inner ring, so you can have people you agree with, and it's not necessarily an inner ring, right? Because if everyone in there is thinking, gee, 
what about this? Or what about that? That the group might not be initially inclined to consider. And you, you need to have, if you're gonna make progress intellectually, if you're gonna run an institution well, you need people in that inner group, not inner ring, in the leadership group, who have a pretty deep shared vision of what they're about. You, don't, you typically don't want people who are deeply hostile to your mission in your leadership group. That leadership group can be an inner ring or not, depending upon how they see their responsibility toward one another and toward the institution. And whether they're the kind of people who are always thinking, well, what, what haven't we thought about? Right? How's this going to look to someone on the outside? Or how's this going to look to certain of our constituents? That doesn't mean that because it might look bad to a constituent, you don't do it. It just means that you should consider in those circumstances all the possible perspectives on what you're doing and be aware of those. Right? That's, that's an inner group. That's not necessarily an inner ring. And, and a ring of friends, you might say, a fellowship of the ring, right? <laughs> uh, a, a ring of friends probably has pretty deep shared views about lots of things. But around the edges, you're not concerned about absolute conformity. Right? That doesn't worry you. And you can even enjoy disagreeing with your friends about certain kinds of things. It's also, if it's a healthy group of friends, you don't primarily define yourself by who's outside. This is the thing about the, the inner ring for Lewis. There's another thing about it, which is that you love being on the inside and you love the fact that there are people on the outside. Right? So this is like a kind of high school clique, right? but operating in a way that has influence in the world and can lead people not to raise questions about certain activities that the group might be engaged in, right? So friendships, yeah, but you, and you would not be concerned primarily with defining yourself by who's outside. And your friendship has also got to be somewhat porous, right? In the sense that some of you have other friends that you hang out with, right? It's also not defined by everyone being in and not being part of any other communities. Right? That's, that's genuine friendship. Yes, any other questions? Yes, please. I'm gonna take a chance here. Yeah. Okay, you explained uh, that uh, Thomas Aquinas liked to present counter arguments. And he made them as strong as possible. Yeah. So here's my chance. May I present the devil's counter-argument? Please. Okay. <laughs> In this theory. Isn't it inherently dangerous to encourage these young people to pursue truth with a capital T? Is it much safer to encourage them to pursue the current truth, which is always safe? What do you mean by that? What do you mean by the current truth? Oh, that's an old communist joke. That okay. The Politburo promotes the current truth. Okay. Uh, because you don't get in trouble socially and so forth. Yeah. Well, you so that's the counter argument. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean I'm one thing I'm not saying I'm just not holding to it by the way. I'm yeah. No 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 I've got I mean, it, I sure I'm I'm happy to respond to that. One thing I'm not saying is that um, we ought to be the sort of people, I mean, some people are, are this more by nature, who are constantly objecting whenever we can think of an objection to something, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there, are, there, there are better and worse settings to do that. Um, and, you know, we all have to make prudential judgments about when we're, we got to pick our fights, right, as we say. And I think that's right. You can't always be, um, you can, but you're not going to last long wherever you are. You can't always be standing on principle. And we do, and for those of us who are inclined always to stand on principle, we have to ask whether that's a genuine virtue or whether there are not elements of pride and other things in that as well. Right? Um, so 
I'm not saying that we ought to always be disagreeing just for the sake of raising objection. There are certain settings where that's more appropriate and other settings where it's less appropriate. So how much should we go with the flow or the current truth? You know, the, the, the problem there is that we, we just lose our souls doing that, right? Um, and that, that doesn't seem to matter until it really does. Uh, when you end up um, having betrayed certain things that you believe in at some at some important level, or when you realize that you don't have a bunch of friends really in this group that you thought you belonged to, I, you know, to, to bring in some of what we talked about at lunch, there's such a with the topic of friendship, there's such a sense, widespread sense of isolation and loneliness in the culture. I think part of it is that sometimes we think it, it's, it's completely unhealthy to feel lonely or uh, sad. And uh, that's an inevitable part of almost every day in every life, right? And I worry that we tell young people that, um, that it's, it's somehow unhealthy to feel lonely or to feel sadness. And we're also always getting around the loneliness and the sadness by my precious here. Right? <laughs> um, and that, that's, we're distracting ourselves from, from things that are going on deep beneath the surface and longings that we have that won't come to the fore if they're always just channeled by, by this stuff, right? Um, but that, I think that that loneliness and sense of not belonging anywhere generates some of the social media stuff, right? Where people get the, the kind of dopamine of belonging by being really vicious about what they believe in or what other people believe. And it's not that there aren't important issues. That, that's not what I'm saying. You shouldn't be concerned about those. But that's not going to satisfy the human heart's desire to belong to a community. And belonging to a superficial community that is just organized around the current truth, that's not going to last. And you may find, if you step out of line slightly, you're suddenly the victim of the group, right? This happens all over the place in our culture. So I, I think that trying to get clearer about the truth with friends, and it, it's, it's clarity about this or that truth, it's also clarity about who we are and what we're called to, and how we realize that. But without friends, we can't do that. Uh, we especially can't do it without the friendship of Christ. So we need to, to navigate these things in such a way that we are alert to the people who are good friends and who, who we enjoy being around. It isn't all about getting together with friends so we can struggle to come to the truth, right? That's a kind of that's an unusual friend group that does that. Maybe Socrates and some friends, but where that's where that's a natural woven into what happens when each of us faces difficulties and doubts and questions. That we've got a group of people we can lean on, whom we trust, love us, and have our good at heart, and they bring us closer to the truth about ourselves and the truth about others and the truth about God. Um, I don't know any real, I mean, I know lots of ways in which we, I know lots of ways in which I have fallen short of that throughout my life, right? It's easy to fall short of it. But that's different from saying that you're going to give up on it, right? Or that that, that that ought not to be a key focus of your life. I just can't, I mean, that's, that's wanting willfully to be deceived. And sometimes we want that, but that's certainly not a virtue. and not healthy for us. Other questions? Yes, please. This is a great discussion. Thank you very much. Maybe I lighten the mood a little bit. Yeah. And, and talk about humor and what uh, some comments are thinking of. Mm -hmm. um, I often admire two people who are fast. Um, and so Anthony Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who couldn't get more right. opposite yeah. of, right. as far as decisions that they were best friends yeah. on the court. And Scalia would often say, 
Right. It seems harder and harder. I mean, you've got Robbie George and Cornell West would be another kind of example on their tour across the country where, you know, you've got a pretty serious conservative and a pretty serious progressive, both of whom are Christians, coming together to talk about issues that they care about. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that's different, because you, you hear stories about the 70s and 80s and not far from here in D.C. where people would have sort of knockdown arguments on the floor of the Senate, and then they'd go off somewhere and have dinner together, right? Um, but, you know, there still are occasional groups of people meeting to pray together across the aisle, but those are pretty rare. Um, and I think also it's the case that the the parties are more unified and narrowed ideologically, right? I mean, you had, in the 70s and 80s, you had a bunch of more liberal Republicans. You had a Republican named John Warner, right? Uh, you had Democrats who were Southern Democrats. You still have a few of those, but there aren't as many around as there used to be. So it's something about what's happened in the parties that they've become more ideologically unified, and there are less people who blend toward the other side ideologically. And then, um, you know, everybody, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's um, Yuval Levin's really good book, A Time to Build, which he published a couple years ago, um, talks about how we see institutions as either formative or per performative. So do we see our institutions where we're pursuing goods together and we receive a kind of formation in that community? Or do we see our institutions as occasions for our performance, perhaps for our own fame, aggrandizement, or money, or performative to advance ideological causes that may or may not be appropriate at this moment in the institution? I think there's an awful lot of people in an awful lot of positions of leadership who see what they're doing as performative rather than formative. And the performative people gobble up the media attention. They gobble up the Twitter attention. And the whole conversation tilts in that performative direction. Um, I want to end, though. Let me, let me say something about wit. It is striking. We're talking about Aristotle's ethics today. And it's striking that Aristotle devotes 20% of his ethics to the topic of friendship. You find textbooks written in ethics in the last couple hundred years, maybe a footnote on friendship. It's just, it's at the margins, right? Aristotle thinks that ethics is about the whole of human life, and the whole of human life lived largely socially, because we're social animals. One of the virtues he talks about is wit. Right? That you, Aristotle thinks you really wouldn't want to lead a life that had no humor or laughter in it. And there is a virtue of wit, which is between being an obnoxious person who's always making fun of things and somebody who's boorish and has no sense of humor. And to have a virtue of wit is a, a key kind of social virtue, right? And so what you mentioned about Scalia and Ginsburg and the way in which they would bring gifts to one another or play little pranks on one another and things like this, that was a way of lightening the mood, which wasn't just for comic relief, right? It was a means of showing friendship. It was a means of shared laughter, which is one of the deepest signs of community, shared laughter, as long as it's the right kind of laughter and it's not a mocking, derisive laughter. Uh, we don't have a lot of humor in, in the culture. I think the sources of humor have, like everything else in our culture, become almost completely politicized, right? So our political discourse is awful, and we have, it's shallow, it's mean, it's petty, and we have politicized virtually everything. And we wanna know why we're unhappy, right? Well, if you have a really bad political discourse and then you spread that into every aspect of human life, it's gonna be pretty miserable. And humor is one of the ways of detaching from that, right? Because humor, 
gives us the ability to stand back and get a perspective that makes whatever is going on uh, easier to deal with or enjoyable to deal with. Thank you. <laughs>